Amen. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Um, we're going to go to First Peter. <clears throat> and if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one and maybe the chair in front of you or behind you. Uh, there's English and Spanish translations. I want to give just a quick shout out to uh, our translators in the back. So Maggie and Paulina and Sergio, I think they're the three you're owning it right now. If you're wondering what this little room is back here with the window, it's not like the Christian penalty box, you know, for those... Um, who just act up during the service. We do live translation on Sunday mornings. If there's somebody sitting next to you with a headset, it's probably because they're getting translation into Spanish. So praise God for you. Thank you for translating. I'm not sure who's back there and I can't see you. Um, but just thank God for the way that you serve our Spanish-speaking members. And it's a sweet, sweet blessing. Uh, before we dive into God's Word this morning, we're going to be First Peter chapter 2 if you want to find that while I'm talking. Uh, I think it's somewhere around page 950-something in one of those chair Bibles. So this morning, when I was coming to uh, church, I usually come to the church really early in the morning. I was, I was passing uh, Mr. and Mrs. Bays' house about 6 a.m. this morning. For those of you who don't know Mr. and Mrs. Bays, they're both in their low to mid-80s. They've been a part of the church. Well, they've been a part of the church since 1967. Uh, we bought their previous building in the previous location we were in, and they stayed with us. They've been with us for now going on maybe eight or nine years. And they're both... Um, Mr. Bates is dealing with uh, congestive heart failure. Uh, Mrs. Bates has leukemia, and they're seeking to take care of one another. So when I, was, I was passing by their house, which I do every morning when I come to the office, and on Sunday mornings, about 6 a.m., there was an ambulance in front of their house. And so I did a quick U-turn, stopped at their house, and, and Mrs. Bates basically fell out of bed uh, this morning, early this morning, and she's uh, possibly broke her hip, so, which is really substantial. So she was in a lot of pain uh, when I came. I was able to get in the house and be with Mr. Bays. And uh, he's, a, he's a soldier. He trusts Jesus to his final breath. Uh, he will. He's such an encouragement to me. If you know him, Mrs. Bays, you're the better for it. Uh, they're sweet, sweet people. They love the Lord. And so I just wanted to give you an update. I prayed for them last week. Um, they're in a place where they need, they need help pretty much every day. As a church, we're trying to figure out the best way to do that. So if you have, there's any urge in your heart to be a part of that, really not knowing exactly what that looks like right now. Uh, there's some, uh, particularly women in the body who have stepped up and, you know, Will has given Mr. and Mrs. Bay's, you know, rides to the doctor and things like that. And others have served well. Um, if you have an interest in being a part of that ministry to them uh, and in general, uh, just come see me, come find me. Uh, Janice, would you mind raising your hand too? Janice is also a part of that and just loving Mrs. Bays and has expressed an interest in kind of being a part of caring for them. And just in general, kind of that care team within the body, um, you know, kind of pre-COVID, we had some structure in place and everything COVID-related kind of just disintegrated a lot of things. And so some of that structure we need to recalibrate, but please be praying for them. One of the things I want to just remind you of, and I want to speak as if Mr. Bays just for a moment because I sat with him just for the brief time I was with him right before I left. And he was just, um, he was just telling me how he's praying for me this morning. He's praying for the church. I always ask how things go on a Sunday. And as he shares, which is usually the case, like as he talks about being with you, he cries every single time. Like he loves the people of God. He loves worshiping with the people of God. And it grieves him to not be here this morning. And so he, he said, this is his message to you. He said, just tell the church that I love them and I'm so sorry that I can't be there. 
And so I just, maybe just for a second, if we can kind of just be challenged, like to not just haphazardly kind of come in here this morning, not just to passively be a, a passenger on the bus that is the local church, occupying a seat, uh, but our hearts really, really invested in this as a family of faith. And so whether that be just in general, in the way we serve it, just this morning that we would just be zealous on Mr. Bates' behalf for the things that God has prepared for us this morning as we come. But let me pray. Let me pray for them. Uh, God, we do pray um, that our hearts would be conformed to the image of your son. And we pray that in some measure we'd be more and more like Mrs. Bays in their pursuit of you for a lifetime. Their submission to you, Lord Jesus, for um, their days. And we are grateful for their example, grateful for their legacy of faith here um, at Crossway. And we pray that you would be near to them in their moment of need. Uh, God, I pray that uh, Mrs. Bayes' hip wouldn't be broken. Um, and if it is, I pray that it wouldn't lead to greater complications and difficulty, that you comfort her in her pain, uh, her physical pain, as well as her just emotional pain and being away from Mr. Bayes. I pray that you comfort Mr. Bayes as he uh, is lonely and without Mrs. Bayes. Thank you for the love for one another, uh, just the sweetness of their relationship. And we pray that you draw near to them as they draw near to you this morning. We love you. We thank you for them. Thank you that the pain of this world at least in some measure, is designed to loosen our hands off of this world and cause us to reach for the next. So would you help us to have that sense of moving beyond the, the pain of this life, even as we survey this book once again uh, this morning, as we hear from your word, would you teach us, illuminate the things in your word you want us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and go to First Peter chapter 2. Well, my name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are, uh, it's our pattern as a church to study verse by verse through books of the Bible, and so we're, we're preaching through the book of First Peter. And so one of the mega themes of this book, as you've heard, is this word pilgrims. And so the picture, even as I think of Mr. Bayes in this life and Mrs. Bayes, there's, there's, a, there's a way in which in this life as God's people, we journey through this life, through this world, as, as a place that we don't belong in, and we don't belong to the people of this world. And so what part of that journey, basically what is provided to us is different shades of difficulty and challenge and trial. And so, so all throughout this book, there's this addressing either silently or really clearly, here's how you are to respond in the face of all of these circumstances that are less than ideal. And so we're in a, a section of this book that's dealing with submission to authority. It's something that kind of bristles all of us, right? I talked last week about this statement, hey, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. That's the natural posture of the human heart. And so hopefully you didn't say that this week in any way to anyone. But last week we looked at submitting to the government. Certainly a hot topic. You can check it out on our podcast. I didn't get any questions this week. I don't, Chris, did you get texts from people? Because I told them to text you. Um, <laughs> I didn't hear anything. So that either means that, that God's word is just doing its work silently or you're just like suppressing a whole lot of feelings that'll come out later. Um, but it's helpful. And so one of the things I shared in that text and that message last week is that despite all the nuances of trying to figure out how does submission to the government actually flesh out, and there's a lot of different ways we have to think through at what point does it become an issue of conscience or violating the law of God? There's, there's all sorts of things we have to nuance. But we have to start from the place of the simple command to be subject to the governing authorities because that's the words in the Bible. 
if we believe that God's Word is our authority in all things in our life and our conduct, then that's this simple command. And so we're going to get another one, same command, just in a different category of life this morning as we continue to journey through 1 Peter chapter 2. So why don't you join with me? We're going to read verses 18 through 25. And this is God's Word to us today and forever. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. So one of the things we see in these sections, and these sections, including next week, kind of deal with situations where as believers, those who have been called out of the world but yet still living in the world, how is our faith to be expressed in these situations that are less than ideal? So today, we have this slave-master relationship, which I'll unpack in just a, a second. But in all these things, we have to consider the presence As strangers to this world, you and I are going to suffer. The righteous are going to be reviled in this life. That's an assumed and stated reality in Scripture. Those who are faithful to God will be mistreated at the hands of men. So how are we to respond? Like revolt? Rebellion? Like simple, like giving our lives to reform and activism as it relates to government? Are we to revile in return or threaten people? No, we, the Bible says we submit to authority. And our submission to authority will be an apologetic to the world as they watch. That's the argument that Peter's making. As you do this, which is supremely counterculture and counterintuitive, even for our own nature, as you do this, it props up an apologetic, which is the word answer. It gives an answer to the world as to the hope that's within you, which we'll see again in 1 Peter 3, 15. There's a peculiar way the people of God display the life within them that's foreign to the world in submission to authority. And so we see it again in this context, in this servant-master relationship. What I want to do just for a minute, in case any of you have this question, there's there's maybe a, a subtle and silent kind of wrestle we can have as we see in the Bible the topic of slavery. And so I want to address this just for a moment. We talked about this a little bit when we preached through the book of Ephesians because Paul addresses it there and in other places as well. But let me just set the scene a little bit for this servant or slave-master relationship. So the word that Peter uses is servant in this particular text is a less common word. It's more like domestic servant. It was a servant who had a closer relationship to the family or to the, the master. 
But if you can put yourself in first century Rome, the Roman Empire at the time, this letter was written. It's fair to say virtually every household was affected directly or indirectly by a master-servant relationship. There was approximately 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at, the, at this time. So some estimate a third of the population of Rome, Corinth, and Ephesus were slaves. And within the church, there were masters and slaves and freedmen, those former slaves. And that kind of makes up the the strata of society in many ways. So in first century Rome, the complexion of slavery looked very different than you might expect. Because one of the questions we can ask is like, why doesn't Peter, why doesn't Paul just flatly debunk slavery and prohibit it? Versus speaking into it and saying this is how you're to interact with slavery because that's present in the New Testament. The balance of the New Testament really kind of unties the cords of the Christian life with slavery. But in the context of a society where believers and non-believers are living in a culture dominated by by these relationships, Peter and Paul and the New Testament in general addresses like here's how the gospel fleshes out in these cultural relationships. But historical inscriptions indicated almost 50% of slaves were freed before the age of 30. This is in Roman slavery. And I'm going to contrast this on purpose with slavery in the U.S. Under Roman law, slaves could largely anticipate being set free. Selling yourself into slavery was a common way to obtain citizenship, to gain entrance into society, to pay off debts. It was a very normal thing. Not necessarily ideal, but very normal. Slaves could own property. Slaves were even educated, held positions in society. They could even own their own slaves. They were able to invest money and save money to purchase their own freedom. All these things contrasted against slavery in Europe and in America in our history. So the relatively easy freedom slaves could obtain in in the Roman Empire and the humanitarian changes that were present even in the first century might be some reason why it wasn't just, in a sense, by biblical writers called for abolition of slavery, but the gospel is going to flesh out in that context. So to be clear, the Bible clearly condemns the type of slavery that took place in our country for hundreds of years. In an ironic way, thinking back to last week, the, the, the injustice and travesties that took place on American soil due to slavery, the, that would have looked a whole lot different if the people of God would have stood up and said, this is not right when you look at God's word. These laws should not be because they violate the word of God. We talked about last week. Like we don't submit to the government when the government tells us to do something that God forbids or forbids us from doing something that God says we should do. And the complexion of slavery in our country would have been much different if the people of God would have stood up in more broad and vast and full ways as the church to disobey the unjust laws of the Lamb. But the gospel redefines this master-servant relationship, the transformation, transformation Jesus brings into a human heart and life. No surprise, it shows up at work. And so this really is where it kind of comes to application for us. Like, what's, like what's the big deal with this? Like, why do you need to listen? Well, you're likely going to work for the majority of your life. You're going to be in places where you are going to have a boss-employee relationship with someone 
And some of you are entrepreneurs for that reason. You're like, I don't want to have a boss. I get it. You still have a boss. But, you, but you, many of you, if not most of us, are going to have the experience of having a terrible boss. And you might be that terrible boss. May the Lord have mercy on you. Come forward at the end of the service. But most of us are going to work under some bad boss in our life. Some of you right now, you're like, yes and amen. I'm working for one right now. I know his or her name. A picture him or her as, as you're preaching this message. And that's why this message is so practical. Because what the Bible is telling you is as a born-again Christian, you have a chance to display the supernatural life of Jesus by submitting to unjust, harsh bosses in the workplace. Because no one else will do that. It's unnatural. It's a natural thing to revile a harsh or unjust boss, to rail against them, to slander them, to threaten them. It's absolutely supernatural and a thing of grace to submit to a boss, certainly a boss that's unreasonable. And the wording given here is crooked. Now we can talk a little bit about like at what point should you leave a particular job because I don't think that as you take the totality of God's word, it doesn't mean that you indefinitely just suffer at the hands of a, a man or woman in this world as your boss. I don't think that's what this means. But what it does mean, much like last week, is that the starting block for the Christian is not let me escape. That's not where you start. The starting point is how is God calling me to submit to this leadership in order to express that I live for someone else and that I'm an exile in this world and I don't live by the grace of God like everybody on this planet, but I live for another world. I live for another master. He's made me different. That's what Peter is arguing. This is this is something that has relevance for the gospel to be expressed. The good news of Jesus who resurrects people, gives them new life, and it's expressed through submitting in ways that natural people just simply will not. So the main point is be subject to your boss, your worldly boss, and not just those who are kind, but also those who are crooked. Your God is different. He's made the ultimate difference in your life through his grace. So when you look at verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. That's a statement that's uttered twice in these couple verses. This is a gracious thing. It's a thing of grace. When a Christian thinking about God, mindful of God because of the conscience God has given them, as the scriptures have taken root in their life, it's a thing of grace that when the Christian thinking about God endures suffering at the hands of a crooked boss. That's a, that's a thing of grace. How do we know that? Well, because it's a natural thing to do the opposite. But as you think about the grace of God, we, we sing about grace, we talk about it a lot. Many of you have a really healthy framework for what grace is, but let me just real quickly kind of comment on the grace of God as seen in the Bible. The grace of God is the, the unwarranted, unmerited, unearned favor of God. And we can contrast it with mercy. So I often do this because I think it's helpful. The mercy of God is God withholding from us what we actually deserve. The grace of God is God freely giving us what we don't deserve. 
And the, the picture in the scriptures that God has given us forgiveness in life that we have proven we do not deserve. Through Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen. And so grace saves the people of God. The grace of God empowers the people of God to be different. The grace of God, we will certainly know one day, has sustained us throughout our whole life to get to the place of finality where our faith becomes sight. It's only by the grace of God that we have finished that race and have wound up in the presence of God forever. Grace sustains us to the end. And if you flip forward to the end of this book, 1 Peter chapter 5, just flip to the, what would be your right, just maybe one or two pages. At the end of this book, this is kind of a final greeting or final statement from Peter, verse 12. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you. Silvanus had a part in delivering this letter to the believers across current day Turkey. He says, Exhorting and declaring that this, encapsulating everything in this book, is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. The grace of God has been delivered through the Lord Jesus. We have life in his name, salvation in his name. We're empowered to live differently through his name. He'll sustain us through that same name, that same grace. And Peter says, stand in it. Don't think you're ever going to graduate from the grace that I've been telling you about that's been provided to you through Jesus. Stand in that grace. It's a thing of grace when a Christian is mindful of God, when we think about how our actions and reactions to the unjust severity of an earthly boss will reflect upon God. Because when you think about it, it might even be this week, you might be unfairly treated in the workplace. And it might be because you're an outspoken believer. So the question from this text is, how are you going to respond? How are you going to react in that moment? Are you going to be... Firstly, mindful of God. Are you going to think about what would God have me do here? How does he want me to respond? Firstly, in subjection so that the gospel can be displayed. Even if it's temporarily. How does God want me to respond? Mindful of what God is doing. Not just responding to the circumstances, moving away from the pain, but considering God, what are you doing in this situation? but we're mindful. We think about how is this going to reflect upon God, right? Because we talked about this a lot. This book overlays this on our hearts. Essentially this, that as exiles, like our life, our conduct says something much more than just who we are as a person or our personal conduct. Like Matt's just, gee whiz, he's a good guy. What, what our testimony, our conduct says, ultimately has a reflection upon the God that we serve. And so it's an accurate picture, picture of what God is like, the grace of God within us. And do we endure for the sake of God that same unjust severity and crookedness? Maybe just a question to ask is in what way and for how long is the Lord calling me to endure? Again, I don't think that the calling is just to be a unending doormat for any godless leader in the workplace. I don't think that's what this is saying. I think the consideration is don't just merely try to escape at the first notion of persecution, difficulty from an ungodly boss. Think of God. Be mindful of what God is doing. 
Be mindful of God putting himself on display even in the midst of your pain, even in the midst of a crooked government. Your subjection to authority, your submission to authority says something about the fact that you serve someone else. You're not just mindful of yourself. We want to escape, not endure. That's our natural inclination. We want to get out and not bear up, and that's the picture here. If I could just rephrase this passage, verse 19, in in more fleshly terms, this is what I would say. For this is a natural thing. When mindful of ourselves, we seek to escape sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's a natural thing. We would all say, yep, that's my natural inclination. That we don't naturally choose endure suffering at the hands of someone who's unjust. But, but Peter says, this, it's a gracious thing. Like, this is a thing of grace that when Christians, mindful of God, endure sorrows, being severely, harshly treated by an ungodly loss. So what's my reaction going to say about God? What does my response reflect? A gracious thing or a normal thing? A heavenly identity or an earthly identity? If I could just pause for a minute. And some of you, I don't know, I think we all hear this because unfortunately it's rampant in the Christian church. You go to Barnes and Noble and find 90% of the books that preach this. And it's basically something like this, is that if you, if you follow Jesus, it's going to be feathers and rainbows. It's, it's, just, it's going to be cake. It's just going to be, everything's going to go well for you. Like, you know, the old adage, like, early to bed, early to bed, early to rise makes a man, a woman, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Anybody know that? This kind of creeped into Christian theology, if you even want to call it that. It's probably not even theology. It's not from the scriptures. This notion that, hey, if you follow Jesus, it's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. That the Christian life somehow is going to be absent from suffering. Well, whoever purports to uphold that as biblical truth is preaching heresy. Because if it, it only takes you probably about 10 minutes to start reading through your Bible even in the book of Matthew. Blessed are those who are persecuted in my name. So it starts there and then it's unpacked just in all this form and different flavor throughout the New Testament. And the picture is that for you and I, becoming a Christian means that there's going to be some measure of suffering. And Peter's next words crush the head of this false teaching. Go to verse 21. So we see in verse 20, what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure? It's another theme that's going to be present later on in the letter. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. It's a thing of grace. Then he says this in verse 21, for to this you have been called. Called to what? To suffer for... Now we wouldn't like choose to have that portion of our calling. That's what this passage is teaching. Central to the calling of these pilgrims, us, the people of God, is this call to to suffer underneath godless rule at times and ridicule and persecution and tribulation. To this you have been called. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul 
teaching and, and giving encouragement to his protege, Timothy, he says this, among other things, he says, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Most of the times we suffering as, as being that which we, we suffer because we don't have power. Someone is exerting over us, upon us, a power that we don't possess. The, the Christian worldview introduces this category where we suffer as believers by the power of God, for the purposes of God, like for the name of God, mindful of him. As a faithful soldier, we suffer by, enabled by the power of God and underneath the the umbrella of the providential rule of God who sustains and governs all of life and all of circumstances. And the rest of this book, and this section we're reading today is a little bit like a threshold to the rest of the book because the rest of the book really focuses in on the suffering of the Christian. It talks about in various ways and shades the suffering that's present for the Christian. Twelve times throughout the remainder of the book, Peter talks or uses the word suffer or suffering or suffered. It's a mega theme throughout the rest of the book. Why? Because we've been called to it. You follow Jesus, part of that is being called to suffer in many ways the way he did. And we'll get there in just a moment. For, this to, you have been call- for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So we think about this question of authority, and this probably came up last week in your mind at least as we think about it, as we think about this category, as we think about next week, this call in the context of marriages, for a wife to submit to her husband even if he disobeys God, and we'll get there and come back next week. We submit to the authority of our earthly is the crooked and the kind, motivated by the reputation of God, empowered by the grace of God, and looking to the example of Christ. Now, I don't know if, about you, but I have like virtually no artistic talent. I can copy things relatively well, but I can't take something in my head and put it down on paper. Like I just, I marvel at artists. Like I just can't do that. One of my kids is a really gifted artist. She's drawn right now, I think. You drawn a picture of me? But I can't take the abstract and make it concrete. And so one of the things I used to love to do when I was young was trace things, right? Because it gives you the illusion that you can actually draw. But tracing gives you, it gives you an outline and a frame of reference to know how to draw something. So you, you lay your paper over that particular image that usually has darker lines that you can see through the paper, and you follow those lines. You follow the path to draw what you want to draw. But I want to just submit to you, that's the picture given here about Jesus' example. You don't know how to draw. You and I don't know how to suffer and be subject in this way. And so Peter doesn't just leave us a command, but he commends us to an example. He says, you've been called to this very thing. It's part of who you are in Christ because Jesus left you an example to follow. He's calling you to trace his footsteps in his life and suffer the way that he did and be subject to the Father ultimately, we're called to trace or follow Jesus' example. In verse 22, it honed, like zooms us in on this example real specifically. Jesus committed no sin. He did what was right. 
There wasn't deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is no sin life. His deceitless life was rewarded on earth with ridicule and suffering. And his peculiar life, his powerful display of humility and submission to the Father is the example we are to follow. So as you think about your particular position, your role in your office, like underneath that boss, if you haven't had that experience yet, you likely will. What Peter is commending us to do is not just to hear a command to be subject to your boss, but to be compelled to trust in the example of Jesus. Be fueled in your faith that it's There's something special about following the footprints of your Savior. Not just being a a recipient of his grace, but walking out his life, his sacrificial death, his suffering, all the while trusting God. And there's a temptation to revile in return. It seems to be that that's what Peter's telling us about. There's going to be a temptation for you to revile in return. Because that's what Jesus didn't do. Although he was sinless, he didn't deceive. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. This this picture of reviling, we don't use that word probably very often. It's the idea of quarreling, to, to rail at someone, to heap abuse upon someone, to verbally assail someone. So if you use the terminology from last week, like we might be tempted like in our positions where we are under the rule of a harsh boss to, to say much like I mentioned last week, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. I'm not going to listen to you. You are unreasonable. Now, most of us are probably street smart enough to know in most situations that's not going to end well for you. You probably need a job more than you need to voice your concerns in that particular way at that moment. But here's, here's how it might come out more commonly. It's more the subtle words around the water cooler at, at the office, maybe across the cubicle to your coworker who shares your disdain for your boss. And in that space, I think reviling flows pretty freely. And unfortunately, I think it's a massive temptation for Christians and non-Christians alike. And so what we have to be confronted with as believers, as a family of God, is what truly did Jesus do? Well, when he rev- was reviled, he didn't revile in return. Don't give in to gossip about your boss. Don't revile your boss through the more subtle version of reviling and gossip and slander behind their back. Because in doing so, you prove to be no different than the world around you. If you've worked in the marketplace, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's pervasive. But be different because your God is different. 1 Peter 3.9 says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. There's a temptation not only to revile in return, there's a temptation to threaten. To speak words of retaliation. I won't have you done this before. But things like, if you keep doing this, I'm going to, Hopefully it's not physical harm, but you're going to do something else. You're going to threaten. Like there's going to be some way in which you, you try to exert that you're in control of the situation. If they keep doing what they're doing, you're out. You're going to do something to make them pay. It doesn't mean at some point 
There's a point at which it's right and okay to, to move on from a job, but it shouldn't be the place that we start. Our initial reaction to difficulty in the workplace should not start by reviling, throwing assaults verbally or otherwise to your boss, or trying to threaten them that if they don't stop, you're just going to bail. When Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He didn't retaliate. And when he suffered, he didn't lash out in anger or seek retribution. But what did Jesus do instead? Let's look at the end of verse 23. The end of verse 23. Let's start in verse 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So this is the this is the alternative. So instead of reviling, instead of threatening, the call is to trust your father. Jesus didn't revile, he didn't threaten, he surrendered, he didn't slander. Jesus trusted his father. This word and trusting himself is used in a few other passages and I think it's kind of helpful. I'm going to use my hands. Because in all the cases, it seems like you're holding this thing, this thing that is your suffering at the hands of an ungodly boss. Like that's the thing you're holding. And the picture is this. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, the picture is to hand it over to the Father. I don't grab it, don't try to control it through threatening and reviling, but hand it over. Mindful of God, we take this thing, this difficulty, this suffering, and we hand it over to God. Matthew 24, 9, the same word is delivered up. You take it to him. We'll see that in 1 Peter chapter 5. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. Deliver them up to him. This thing in your hands, this difficulty, this moment, this moment of pain, Jesus gave all the pain to his Father, it's another example of that word. And what this isn't is kind of a let go, let God, which has become this just stupid Christian idiom. That's not what this is talking about. Don't just let go and let God. That's not what this is saying. But in so much as you are tempted to grab this pain and seek to control it, to seek to control your circumstances, to try to escape from it, what God is saying is trust me. Trust me with it. Bring it all the way to me. Don't just think about it. Don't just toil over it, but give it to me. Be mindful of what I'm doing in this situation for the sake of my name and for the sake of the growth of your faith. Deliver it all the way up to him. And the Father ultimately is a just judge. The Father is faithful and revenge is his alone, and whether it be now under the authority of a crooked boss or in the inevitable experience in the future of having the same, how are you responding? Like, how will you respond? Is your plan A to escape? Or will you prayerfully consider how God is calling you to endure? This is a gracious thing. When Christians, thinking about what God wants them to do, endure. And we live in a culture saturated with the desire to want to escape anything difficult. It's natural to the human heart, but it's particularly saturating our current cultural moment. Like anything difficult, we just want to flee. Nothing difficult. 
Maybe some of it has to do with buying into the fact that I thought this was supposed to be easy. I thought it was just feathers and rainbows. That's your calling to endure suffering. Because after all, why would a child of the Savior be different than the Savior? He goes sin. Wasn't any deceit in his mouth. He didn't revile. But yet he suffered immensely at the hand of wicked men. And we know ultimately because of the plan of God. Is your first impulse to escape? Is your first impulse to revile and threaten or to submit with respect? The starting block, as I've mentioned, for the Christian is submission to authority. That's what grace enables. And that's what Jesus modeled. And this section ends with a point that we're going to transition to the Lord's Supper. In verse 24, he, Jesus, himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As we get ready to take the Lord's Supper together, what I want to do is kind of prepare a little bit just for this moment. You know, this text is, is so sweetly kind of connects this call that's immensely practical. Like you work, you have a boss, you're going to have bad bosses. Here's how your faith intersects that moment. But it doesn't just leave us with this general command. But it commends us to, it connects us to Jesus as our ultimate example. And part of what is said here is every single one of us that we were straying. Peter says, you were straying. You were far off. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Every single one of us has lost our way. And Peter pulls this language from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Many of you know that passage is just one of the, the biggest examples in the Old Testament pointing to the suffering of Jesus. But here's some of what's said in Isaiah, chapter 53. Verse 5, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Listen to this part. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every single one to his own way. So Peter draws our attention to this same reality. Like we... We were all straying. So in this moment, probably central in the Christian faith is this moment where we remember the blood of Jesus spilled, the body of Jesus pierced. Why? Because every single one of us were straying. Some of you in this room are still straying. And you have not returned yet to the guardian and shepherd of your soul. But Peter says, you were straying. And what was the thing that brought change. Jesus bore our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So one of the questions I would give you is, have you, have you returned? What's assumed in this letter to Christians is that they have returned to the guardian and shepherd of their souls. The one who alone can take care of them and Keep them during this life unto the life to come. Have you returned to your creator, the overseer of your soul? 
And so if you're, if you're not a Christian in this room, you're not quite sure where you stand with God, let me just firstly commend you, believe in Jesus Christ today for the salvation of your soul. Trust in him alone. There's no other solution found in this passage to our constant straying and waywardness other than he bore our sins on himself, on the tree, the tree of Calvary, at the cross. He became our sin so that you and I could become what we're not, namely righteous in his sight. And it's only through Jesus. He is the only way and truth and life. He's the only one that can pave the way to the Father. Have you returned to him? So this is a reminder to us that we need to surrender firstly to Jesus. If you've never done that, this is not for you because this is an act of remembrance for the Christian. It can be to you, maybe for the first time today, a moment of salvation and a moment of remembrance. And for those of us who've been walking with the Lord, even just for a couple days, this is a time for us to proclaim and remember his death until he returns. So I want to invite you to take a minute, just kind of bow your heads, and I'm going to invite you to come up and get the elements in just a moment. There's tables in the back and in the front. But I want you to contemplate this question. Have you returned? Have you returned once and for all to the shepherd and overseer of your souls? And if you're in Christ this morning, there's a picture given here that we have died. If we are in Jesus Christ, we have died to sin and we live to righteousness. And so as we take communion, it's also part of this process for us to be purified in that process of dying to sin once again, living to righteousness once again. And so there may be certain things this morning, there may be even relationships that you know you need to mend, that this moment provides a pathway for confession or you agree with God that certain things in your life are wrong and you turn. You return to God once more to find healing, to find forgiveness, to find the grace to propel you forward for usability for the sake of his name. I invite you to take a minute, just kind of survey your heart, be reminded of the overwhelming grace of God, that you're not accepted in the sight of God because of your best day, and nor are you qualified to be part of his family because of your best day. You're not disqualified because of your worst day. That you're forgiven and accepted through the work of Christ alone.